Okay, so you guys might be a little bit surprised to find out that half of my, at least half of my talk, or more than half of my talk, is going to have take place on terrestrial systems, and that's because I'm going to talk um, largely about islands, which are actually a critical link to uh, ecosystems uh, in important ways, and I think also concentrate on on people as well. Um, so. I spend much of my time working on islands and island conservation for a number of reasons. Uh, these are two main reasons. One, as all of you probably know, they have a high endemism. Galapagos tortoises, why, et cetera, et cetera. Find that all over the world. And then this is the critical link why they might be important or are important to marine ecosystems and the functioning of marine ecosystems and consequently MPAs. And that's because they provide critical breeding habitat for many of the apex predators in marine ecosystems. Seabirds, sea turtles, and pinnipeds. And I'm gonna talk mostly about uh, uh, seabirds in the next uh, 20 minutes or so. So if we look globally at data, this is IUCN data for uh, threatened and endangered seabirds worldwide. You can see, and the, and the x-axis, the y-axis is uh, the percentage of, this, of each of these threats that contribute to endangered seabirds. You see invasive species and actually habitat destruction are by far the biggest threat to endangered seabirds compared to marine sources such as fisheries, pollution, and perhaps disease. So these are land-based stages that are happening in the breeding colonies, mostly on islands. And these are some of the main players, feral cats and invasive rats, which are present on over 80% of the world's islands due to, not, due to introductions that have happened over the past um, 500 years. So you can, have, you can ask the question, well, within an MPA, if the islands where marine vertebrates, the apex predators in the, in the marine ecosystem, and they breed on these islands or population sinks, that could have um, serious functional consequences for marine protected areas and marine ecosystems in general. So the good news is invasive species can be removed from islands, and we've gotten really good at actually removing invasive species from islands over the past 20 years, 20 to 30 years, and all this work originated in New Zealand because they got, uh, they lost most of their biodiversity since they're largely an island nation, and they decided to do something about it. And now we've uh, exported that technology around the world, and now groups like the group I work with and other groups are working on islands in Mexico, the Americas, and elsewhere around the world. And this is probably probably one of the most powerful conservation tools we have in terms of um, stopping extinctions and restoring ecosystems. So I'm going to talk about three of those examples today, hopefully very quickly. One has to do uh, is an invasive species eradication on a remote, uninhabited atoll. The second one is a, a island conservation project on a small, isolated fishing community. And the last one, which took place in the Galapagos, is a large, globalized community. So the first one had zero people, very simple. The second one had a, a small fishing village that was pretty much homogenous, it was about 400 people. And Galapagos has about 20,000 people and over 100,000 visitors a year. So the first one that takes place in Clipperton Atoll, which is off the west coast of, of Mexico, quite a bit, quite a ways off. It's about the size of four, four football fields. A seabird biologist by the name of Ken Steger 
in, uh, in the late 1950s went out to went out to the island to study boobies, mass boobies, and, and brown boobies. And when he arrived, he also found pigs. And he was looking. Normally, they were, they were, he was expecting brown boobies and land crabs, but then he found pigs on the island. And instead of finding going out and finding lots of boobies, he found less than 400, 400 boobies, a whole bunch of pigs, 55 of them. Luckily, he had a shotgun with them, and he shot all the, all the pigs on his trip. <laughs> Unfortunately, he never made it back to the island, but Bob Pittman, a friend of his, went back in 2003 and found no pigs, but 100,000 mass boobies and 25,000 brown boobies. So this is now the second largest brown boob, brown boob economy in the world. It's very simple conservation. It would be nice if all islands were like that. <laughs> all, all conservation projects for that matter. So that's what we call kind of the low-hanging fruit. Our group is constantly looking for these low-cost, high-return, high-conservation-return projects. So the second thing I want to talk about is also in Mexico, a little bit further north um, in that area that Rafe was mentioning, this kind of a peninsula. And that island is called the Tibiad Island. It's about 1,000 hectares. It's a little bit larger, about twice as large as Clipperton Atoll. Same story, 90, 99% of the, of the world's population of blackfish shearwaters nest on this island. And the, but the difference is, is there's a small town of about 400 people, all abalone fishermen, that make their lives fishing on abalone, live on the island. Same situation, instead of pigs this time, Feral cats have been introduced to the island. So our colleague Brad Kitt spent about two years on the island. This is with our nonprofit island conservation. And Brad spent uh, half of his time studying the ecology and the breeding phenology and the conservation of, of, of this seabird, the black and the shearwater, was able to document that cats were, were killing about a thousand birds a month. And we were able to do demographic analysis to show that actually these cats could actually drive the entire colony to extinction in a fairly short time. When Brad wasn't doing that, he was spending time with the community and other people that were with our group were spending time in the community, meeting with managers, talking to people, taking the kids out from the school into the breeding colony to show them the actual blackfin and shearwater making neat things like comic books and bumper stickers and et cetera to try to educate the community that they have this bird that's found nowhere else in the world, it's really important, and cats are bad for it. And so this worked so amazingly well that the school made a new emblem for their school that not only included the abalone, which is obviously the, the lifeblood of, of the community, but also included the black and the sheer water. And this, this bottom-up approach worked so well that the governor of the, of, the little, of the mayor of the town actually came to us and said, well, can you guys help us get the cats off? Which obviously we were certain. We're <laughs> <laughs> so everything was in place, we were able to bring in this team of hunting, hunting, a hunting team with these dogs, and then remove the cats. Thanks <laughs> to Brad's work, we were able to document the impact. So in 1998, the cats, 1,000 birds, 1,000 shearwaters per month were killed. After cats, the mortality was down to the normal levels of about 88 birds. That's mainly due to peregrines and, and seagulls. So this is the kind of middle of the road example where there's a little bit of higher, higher cost or higher investment in terms of environmental education and community-based 
um, conservation, but that still has a high return. So now we're going to talk about a really complex problem that I spent the last five years involved in, and that has to do with the Galapagos, which I'm sure all of you guys heard about. They might, some of you guys might not know that a lot of the Galapagos is trash, mainly because of these guys, feral goats that, were, that have been on the islands, on some of the islands since Darwin arrived and beat Darwin to the islands. These are pictures taken from uh, Isabella Island, which is the largest island in the Galapagos. Northern Isabella Island in the, the mid-1990s before, before goats. And this is, this is what goes through the ecosystem in less than, less than seven years. So they've transformed um, much of the Galapagos through overgrazing. That cascades and has secondary impacts to land birds um, as well as the Galapagos tortoises. So I've been involved in this project. It's called, uh, we've termed it Project Isabella. It was a massive effort. It was uh, funded by the Global Environmental Facility. And the goal was to remove goats, as well as pigs and uh, feral burros, from the two largest islands in the Galapagos, Santiago Island and Isla Isabella. Uh, the big challenge here is that this is a, this, Isla Isabella is about a magnitude bigger than anything that's ever been attempted in the world in terms of trying to get invasive species off islands. So a lot of people 10 years ago when they started talking about this, even the people in the field were, were saying that it's impossible. There's no way you could remove even goats from such a large island. Luckily, a few of us weren't willing to uh, listen to the recommendations. And the project just ended uh, last year and it was successful. It took about eight years. But if you look at the background of the island, it's extremely complex. Ecuador and Galapagos is extremely unstable politically. There's multiple stakeholders, including the island. The natural resources in the island are managed by two institutions, which adds a, uh, another layer of bureaucracy. Um, and the project was funded by the United Nations, which adds a, a, another very thick layer bureaucracy, and then you have the whole tourism industry, which drives the whole economy to a certain extent of the Galapagos. And then you have these complex communities that are made up of people that make their living off tourism. There's, a, there's an active and very organized artisanal fishery. And there's a lot of animosity between the fisheries and uh, the Galapagos National Park and the other um, agencies. In, in the sense that, and so you may have heard over the past three years, it's not uncommon for the fisheries to actually overtake the national park headquarters and shut them down. And they're pretty sophisticated, and they want uh, permits to fish more and bigger take permits. So sophisticated that during Project Isabella, they would, the fishermen actually would threaten. One time they actually did introduce goats to the one island where there's no introduced species on the island. So they're fairly sophisticated in the marine environment, the marine uh, issues cross over to the terrestrial conservation issues. So just briefly, how, how the hell do you get uh, 100,000 goats off an island? And the answer is you have a lot of money. The project was about 10 million bucks. We also leverage, uh, heavily leverage GPS and GS te technology and use lots of multiple techniques. You use uh, groups of ground hunters and, and dogs, but you also use high technology like shooting out of helicopters and 
and, and that's that's the main uh, tool that allows us to remove um, to eradicate invasive species from such a large scale cost effectively. So why did it succeed? I think it succeeded because uh, there was a small core team that was apolitical, but also politically connected. Uh, the, the core team was about five people, including uh, two directors, and one of those directors was Galapagania, which allowed us to kind of navigate the local bureaucracy, and there was a lot of it. And we combined this, we found a, a right balance, or at least a sufficient balance, that between building local capacity, so all of our local hunters were actually local Galapagania, but also bringing in international experts that needed to get the job done, and that was in the, in the sense of bringing in New Zealanders to do the aerial component, because they're the best in the world. So, amazingly, in addition to removing 160,000 goats and 18,000 pigs from the island, the project survived eight presidents, 20 ministers of the environment, and 12 park directors. This is an incredibly unstable environment. I'm still kind of surprised that we actually um, succeeded. And I think the GAF funding actually helped because what the GAF funding actually do, did was require the institutions and governments to sign on to the project or committed to the project, irrespective of this um, instability throughout the system. And it's also very convenient that we had a single goal, and that was remove the goats. And we weren't really, we weren't uh, willing to um, go off that goal for any, for any other reason. So even though this was a lot higher cost or high, higher investment, the return in the long run is actually probably the highest of these three projects, because we're dealing with such a big island and we're saving so much biodiversity. So we went from the low-hanging fruit, which is a very simple but increasingly rare situation in the world we live today, to a globalized uh, project on islands in the, in the increasingly common world today. And so we deal, my group deals with this all the time, but which one should we do, or which one should we prioritize, and we're increasingly coming to the, to the conclusion that well, we just do all three, because they all have uh, costs and benefits. So now I want to talk really briefly about actually an MPA. And this is work done for a friend of mine named Richard Cutney Bueno down in Mexico. He's a researcher at the University of Arizona. This is an actual MPA that, evolved, that is on an island. We've worked a little bit together on this project. But I think it, it points out a really important lesson, at least I think it's an important lesson for protected areas in general. And it's not published yet. I keep trying to get Richard to publish it. It's kind of published. But I, I wanted to talk about it because I think it's very relevant today for our protected areas. And this has to do an area in the northern Gulf of California called Puerto Penasco, right, right near the Colorado Delta. And Richard is one of the few people that I know that is an excellent anthropologist and also an excellent ecologist. He's a marine ecologist. He's been working for the past eight years in Puerto Penasco with a co-op that's similar to uh, the co-op, the structure that Rafe was uh, referring to. These guys fish uh, murex, which is a, a marine snail, along with a few other species. And they do that on hookah diving, which is basically diving with, with um, hoses instead of scuba. This is uh, San Jorge Island, which is one, one of the places they work. And the co-op's about 40 people. 
similar story in terms of a fishery. Uh, here's the snail production um, in the late 80s. The, the, the market was in a, uh, market was growing. They started um, fishing or, or collecting snails more and more. Then they had a, a great land in 1992, and then, of course, as we all know, the fishery collapsed. They overfished it. Richard approached these guys, which was a, a, a intact group that was a pretty tight knit group, and talked them into setting up their own reserves, and talked them into trying to manage sustainably manage their marine resources that they were that they were harvesting. So I did that in a couple of ways. First thing is they established a closure to try to have this, uh, the fishery recover, and then they. <coughs> a voluntarily made a marine reserve around San Jorge Island. And he also engaged the actual co-op in monitoring and doing their own science with the help of Richard and another NGO. So basically, here's the island, there's the community. They set up a reserve around San Jorge Island, and they set up another, some patrol areas, a few other reserves, and they actually applied for permits when they were not fishing San Jorge Island. They would fish other areas. And they actually tried to engage the Mexican government in helping them actually declare this in marine protected areas and the Mexican government when couldn't be bothered with it. So this was 100% bottom up, totally voluntary. And it worked beautifully. So here they are. Richard's been working with them. They're all excited. They saw these. The marine reserve clearly worked. The recruitment went off the roof. And this is just, this is, uh, this is snail sizes in the red uh, before the reserve, after the reserve. And I want to show you all the data that's involved. And, and you just have to trust me. But lots of data that Richard collected showed that the, the actual reserve was working in terms of recruitment. And the interesting thing is, well, how did they enforce it in terms of how did other people come and fish the reserve since it wasn't legally reserved? And they did it basically by group pressure. Here's a, here's a person of the co-op that took his boat and went and fished the reserve when it was closed. And he took his, and he took his boat and placed it up on a cement block. So this was all kind of social pressure, tight-knit group, internal sanctions, self-regulated. Everything's working, working beautifully until another group of fishermen a couple hundred miles south in Bayaquino got word that out in Isla San Jorge, they, these guys set up a reserve and no, one, no one's fishing it and recruitment went off the roof and there's all this murex up there. And the cash is worth a couple hundred thousand dollars. So the system basically collapsed. Those fishermen from Bayaquino took their pongas, cruised up, fished the whole area. And then what happened was, you have this, if you look at kind of the, the timing, you have this establishment of a viable MPA from the bottom up that worked. It was impossible to control access from outsourced resources with peaceful means. The other fishermen from down south came out and fished the area. And then this sense of hopelessness within the co-op, because the government wouldn't take action or help them, is, uh, is increased. And then basically the co-op said, well, if these guys are going to fish, we have no choice and we have to make a living. So they went in 
and actually also fished their marine reserve. And then the, co the co cooperation uh, breaks apart and the NPA collapses. So my kind of take home message from that, and, and we take the same approach on islands that in an increasingly globalized world, even if bottom-up approaches are successful, most likely you're also going to need top-down approaches in terms of um, being successful for protected areas. So I will leave it at that. It's kind of four stories. Thanks. <laughs>